cancer-related mortality has been declining steadily in the United States. Treatment advances have reduced death rates for some cancers, but most of the reduction in mortality can be attributed to efforts related to cancer prevention and early detection. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Richard Chilsky, Chief Medical Officer and Executive Vice President of the American Society of Clinical Oncology and a member of the journal's editorial board. As part of the journal series in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academy of Medicine, Dr. Shilsky has co-authored a perspective article about progress in preventing and treating cancer. Dr. Shilsky, the first milestone you mentioned in your article is the passage of the National Cancer Act of 1971. What did cancer research and treatment look like before that point? Well, scientifically, it was still fairly primitive. We didn't have a good understanding of uh, the causes of cancer or the factors that contribute to its progression and spread. We had very limited understanding of the risk factors for cancer. Of course, by 1971, the Surgeon General's report had been issued regarding the link between tobacco and cancer. That came out in 1964. So we knew something about tobacco as a risk factor, but we didn't know a lot about genetic risk factors for cancer as we understand today or infectious risk factors for cancer as we also currently understand. And cancer treatment back in the 1970s and prior to that was really quite primitive by today's standards. There was very little available in the way of systemic therapy for most solid tumors, cytotoxic chemotherapy, which had been already introduced for the treatment of leukemia, lymphoma, and other hematological malignancies really wasn't being widely used yet in the treatment of most solid tumors. And what was most commonly used, at least in diseases like breast and prostate cancer, were hormone-related therapies. So it was a very, very different landscape from the way it is now 50 years later, both with respect to understanding risk factors for cancer, understanding cancer biology, and then having a wide array of highly specific cancer treatments that are far more effective than what we had 50 years ago. So how did the National Cancer Act change the kind of research that was being conducted? Well, what the National Cancer Act did really was to focus the nation's attention on cancer. And it created the NCI-designated cancer centers, which are typically based in academic medical centers, and bring together experts from across all aspects of cancer research and treatment into a focused and multidisciplinary effort in cancer discovery, translation of discoveries into clinical applications, and then a broader effort to understand how various risk factors for cancer or other cancer control strategies can be applied in the population. So the National Cancer Act elevated the primacy of the National Cancer Institute as the leading institution in a national cancer program. It provided dedicated funding to the National Cancer Institute separate from the NIH budget, and it provided authority to the director of the National Cancer Institute to directly submit a budget proposal to the Congress, bypassing uh, the usual process of budget development in the administration, in which the NCI director could lay out the needs and the opportunities for the country with respect to cancer research and how to best address a problem of cancer in the population. So it was really a very seminal event that really galvanized and focused the efforts of the scientific community on cancer. So looking specifically at risk factors, 
How has our understanding of the conditions, behaviors, exposures that affect cancer risk changed over the past 50 years? Well, we've come to understand a lot, and I would sort of bucket our understanding of risk factors into three broad areas. One, of course, is genetic risk factors for cancer. And so in the last 50 years, we've identified a number of cancer susceptibility genes that we now understand to run in families and that account for a small proportion of cancers overall. But in the families in which those gene mutations are common, like BRCA1 and BRCA2, they are accompanied by a high risk of developing cancer in the affected individuals. Secondly, we've come to understand that a significant fraction of cancers, perhaps 20 or even 25%, are related to infectious etiologies. So we know now that, for example, human papillomavirus infection is related to cervical and oral cancer. We know that hepatitis B virus infection is related to liver cancer. We know that Epstein-Barr virus infection is related to nasopharyngeal cancer. And uh, of course, we understand now that even HIV infection is a risk factor for certain kinds of cancer, notably Kaposi's sarcoma. Although since we have very effective antiretroviral therapy these days, those risks have been greatly diminished. And then of course, we have been able to link various environmental exposures or lifestyle choices to an increased risk of cancer. So foremost among those, of course, is tobacco use and its likelihood of increasing the risk of developing a number of different kinds of cancers, head and neck, lung, esophageal, pancreatic, bladder cancer, and so on. We understand the risk between excessive sun exposure and skin cancer. We understand the risk between alcohol consumption and various types of digestive tract cancers and so on. So the risk factors for cancer come into much more clear focus than was ever the case. And of course, that has led them to potential interventions to diminish those risks. In some cases, those mitigation strategies might be risk-reducing surgeries like prophylactic mastectomy in women who are BRCA1 gene mutation carriers. It might be, of course, quitting smoking tobacco cessation strategies of various sorts might be the use of sunblock effectively. It might be vaccination against oncogenic viruses like human papillomavirus. And all of this has also occurred on a backdrop of recognizing that early detection of cancer is associated with better outcomes. And of course, that has led to the widespread implementation of cancer screening strategies. So screening for cervical cancer, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and even now lung cancer, where it's become clear from NIH-funded prospective randomized trials that low-dose CT screening for people at high risk of developing lung cancer can be effective in reducing lung cancer mortality. So I think it's largely these prevention and screening tactics developed over the last 50 years that have contributed to the substantial decline in cancer mortality that you referenced in your introduction. So the largest reductions in cancer mortality have been reported for tobacco-related cancers. In your view, are there lessons from tobacco control efforts that can be applied to strategies related to other risk factors? Well, I guess I think the main lesson to be learned is that it's hard to change people's behavior. And it takes a long time. It takes a lot of persuasive evidence. It takes sometimes very shocking depictions of the potential outcomes of not changing behavior. And so if you look at what's been done with respect to tobacco control, it's been a combination of legislation to limit the use of tobacco, 
creation of smoke-free environments, limiting the sale of tobacco to minors, implementing cigarette taxes to discourage purchase of tobacco. But it's also required a lot of public health efforts to educate people about the risks of tobacco, uh, very overt and explicit labeling imposed by the FDA on cigarette packages, things of that sort. And even public service announcements from various organizations depicting the ravages of tobacco use by showing essentially before and after pictures of people who were previously healthy and then people who were seriously ill from tobacco-related cancers. It takes all of those things, I think, to convince people. And then you need strategies to help them quit once they've made the choice to quit. And that's where things like various tobacco cessation medications and, and other strategies become important as well. Turning to a treatment, you say in your article that recent targeted therapies have produced some spectacular short-term remissions of cancers that were previously quite difficult to treat, but that long-term disease control is rare and that this precision medicine benefits only a minority of patients. So what do you see as the next step in efforts to develop more broadly effective cancer treatments? The development of what we now refer to as precision medicine and oncology really stemmed from the detailed understanding of cancer as a genetic disease that emerged in the 1980s with the discovery of oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes and then was expanded substantially in the 1990s and early 2000s with the Human Genome Project and then the Cancer Genome Atlas Project that followed from that that began to lay out the landscape of mutations associated with human cancers and assign causality to them. And so we now have a very complete understanding of you know, what is often referred to as the hallmarks of cancer. We have a pretty good list of genes that when mutated clearly contribute to the growth and progression of cancer. And we have the development of a wide array of targeted small molecule and antibody therapies that when applied can produce oftentimes very spectacular remissions in patients, which are sometimes long-lasting, but in other cases, the tumor has various adaptive mechanisms that allow it to develop secondary and tertiary mutations and escape from the therapeutic effect of the targeted agent. So that's what we mean in the article by the fact that remissions are sometimes spectacular, which they are, but often short-lived because and generally speaking, within 12 to 18 months of the application of a targeted therapy, resistant clones begin to emerge and the patient relapses from the treatment. Now, the good news to some extent is that as we have recognized the mechanisms that underlie the emergence of resistance, so for example, the emergence of resistance mutations in tumors, it's been possible to then develop second and third generation targeted therapies that are effective once again in targeting those resistance mutations. But the same pattern tends to repeat where over time resistance to those targeted therapies emerges and the tumor escapes from the therapeutic effects. So where are we going with that? One hope, of course, is to use multiple targeted therapies in combination that will either prevent the development of drug resistance or significantly delay it. And we're beginning to see that in some diseases like melanoma, where we know that combinations of targeted therapies are more effective than single-agent targeted therapies. And of course, what we've seen more recently and has really excited our field is the in-depth understanding of the immune system as it relates to cancer 
that has allowed for the development of targeted monoclonal antibody drugs that reverse the immunosuppression induced by cancers and, in a sense, unleash the immune system to much more effectively fight the cancer than any type of therapy we've seen in the past. And one of the exciting things about immunotherapies, of course, is that they work across multiple tumor types, so they're not necessarily specific to any particular tumor type. And although they don't work in every patient, when they do work, oftentimes they're associated with very prolonged remissions because the immune system has memory and the immune system is able to remain engaged in fighting the cancer over prolonged periods of time. So the challenge we have right now with immunotherapy in, in this sense is to figure out which tumors are the most susceptible and which tumors are resistant and why they're resistant, and then to develop strategies to overcome that resistance. Finally, you mentioned disparities in cancer prevention and outcomes in your article. What strategies look promising for improving access to care and quality of care for minority and rural populations? And why do you think the inequities continue to exist? So disparities in cancer care and outcomes is unfortunately persistent and even growing problem in our country. And we have data now over many years, for example, that African-American patients don't obtain the same benefits of cancer treatment as white Americans do. We see other patient populations that are not able to access clinical trials, not even able to access reasonable standards of care. It's very clear that these disparities are not related to biological differences in the population. They're related to access to care. They're related to socioeconomic status. They're related to insurance coverage. It's interesting. We've seen data now presented over the last several years looking at the impact of expanding Medicaid, for example, following the passage of the Affordable Care Act and showing that in those states that expanded Medicaid and therefore presumably made healthcare more accessible to people with low incomes, that in those cases, those individuals were able to access care more readily, had better cancer outcomes, and in some studies, the disparities in outcomes between low-income populations, oftentimes underrepresented minorities, and white patients disappeared. So it is certainly possible for us to address the problem. It's going to require, I think, good access to care for everyone who is at risk of developing cancer or has cancer. It's going to require ensuring that even in our most remote areas of the country, that we have well-qualified cancer specialists accessible to those populations, whether that's going to be by encouraging oncologists to practice in those regions or whether it's going to be by providing access to oncologists through telemedicine services or the other strategies. All of those things are being evaluated. But at the end of the day, whether someone who's living in a remote rural part of the country or someone who's living in the inner city and who has inadequate resources to travel to a major cancer treatment facility. It's the same problem. It's an access of care problem, and we really have to work hard as a country to solve it. There's a risk that disparities will get worse before they get better, because as our technologies that we are applying in cancer treatment become more sophisticated, and as our therapies are becoming more effective, they're also becoming more expensive and to some extent are becoming less accessible to segments of the population. 
So we have to work hard to be sure that every cancer patient gets access to necessary testing to evaluate the extent of their tumor and the biology of their tumor. We have to be sure that every patient gets access to the best possible therapy options for their cancer. And that's going to require a lot of work through our political process to ensure that all patients have adequate insurance and can access the care they need when they need it. Thank you, Dr. Shilsky.